Would you like to grab a Bible um, on the end of your pews and uh, pass those down? Uh, many of you have been here the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've been going through Exodus chapter 34 and uh, just looking at a few verses in Exodus 34 uh, where God is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's page 93 in the Bibles. So for the third week in a row, I'm going to do exactly the same reading. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at verse 5. Last week, we looked at verse 6. And surprise, surprise, today we're going to look at verse 7. And some of you have been getting very excited about it because verse 7 is the most complicated and most tricky of the verses. And it has been a challenge, um, I've got to say, preparing this sermon this week. So I'm going to, in a second, read this. And then I'm going to ask you to pray for me as I speak. And then I will pray for all of us. And then we'll have a look at it. So, page 93. Exodus 34, verses 4 to 7, says this. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Would you like to pray for me? Let's just have a moment of quiet. I'd love you to pray for me, and then I'll pray. Let's pray. Lord God, tonight as we look at this passage... Now we look at this one challenging verse. We pray that you'd help us. We pray that you'd challenge us. Pray that you'd speak to us by the power of your spirit. Pray that you'd work amongst us for your glory. And that you'd teach each one of us more about what kind of God you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The number one book of all books sold uh, on Amazon for most of the last month has been this book. It's called This Is Gonna Hurt, The Secret Diaries of a Junior Doctor by Adam Kay. And it's very funny, as one might expect from a, a man who is a stand-up comedian and a writer of TV comedy shows. But it's also very real and very raw in places. As Adam Kay, as he speaks about the highs and the lows of his 12 years in the medical profession before switching career, and it's quite a switch, to comedy. And I thought what I'd do to start this evening is I would read the one place in his diaries, in all this book, the one place in his diaries where he mentions God. Okay, in all the diaries there's just one place, and this is the one occasion when God gets mentioned. It's a really sad moment, and it's when he's just delivered a stillborn baby. And this is what he writes. He writes the following in his diary. He says, I'm sorry, I say to him, the stillborn baby, as I take the samples I need. There we go, all done now. I dress him again, look up to a God who I don't believe in, and say, look after him. Now that poignant moment, it is a reminder that for most people, for most people the key question in life is actually not, does God exist or not? 
People often say that's the key question for most people. Does God exist? Actually, for most people, it's not. Because for most people, including Adam Kay, most people in their heart of hearts actually do believe that some sort of God exists. Adam Kay, he may say in that quote, he may say that he doesn't believe in God. And yet in that moment of tragedy, what does he do? He prays to this God that he supposedly does not believe in. And really that has been the contention of this little three-week series. That the biggest question of all for most of us is what kind of God is God? What is God actually like? What is this God like who is behind all that we see, all that we touch, all that we experience in life and we feel just cannot be just a matter of pure, meaningless, blind chance? What's he like? But here's the problem. So often what we do is we make up what God is like. We decide what kind of God he is. We make God in our own image. And here is probably the most common way that we do that. We look at a passage like we're looking at tonight and we we, we look at God telling Moses what he's like and we read the nice stuff that we looked at last week. We look at verse 6 and it says the Lord, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love, he's abounding in faithfulness, he's the perfect parent, the perfect judge, the perfect spouse. We think that's wonderful. Isn't that great? And then we get to verse 7 and we're like, what the heck is going on? This God that I thought was compassionate, that I thought was gracious, that I thought was abounding in love, here he is in verse 7 and he seems to be getting excited at punishing people, not just people, but children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Who does this God think he is? And so what do we do? We say, let's just stick with verse 6 and let's just ignore, discard, reject, forget about verse 7. But that, I hope you can see, that is intellectual suicide. If we are at liberty to decide which bits of the Bible to pick and choose and which bits to ignore, I hope it's clear to all of us that what we're just doing then is we're making a pretend God, a God in our own image, a God that is just determined by the bits of the Bible that we think are nice and right. And that cannot possibly be the real God. Because then we are deciding what this God is like rather than God telling us what he's like. And I don't know about you, but I speak here, I speak as a vicar. One thing I do not want to do in my life, one thing I do not want to do is waste my entire life worshipping a God who isn't real, but is merely just a projection of my own ideas and thoughts. I mean, what a waste of time that is. So I say, let's go with the better option. Let's, like Jesus did, let's take all of Scripture seriously. And let's try and work out what verse 7 is actually telling us about what kind of God God is. So let's look at verse 7, page 93. Here's the first thing I think that God is telling us about him, about what kind of God he is in verse 7. The first thing God's saying is that God punishes the guilty. God punishes the guilty. We cannot sugarcoat it any other way. Verse 7, look at it. God says he is maintaining love to thousands, that's fine. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, that's fine. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Help, that's not so fine. 
Now, if you were here last week, we saw that fundamentally God is love. God is love. Fundamentally, God is not anger. No, fundamentally, God is love. But God's anger does exist. His anger is his loving response to all that is evil in this world. He punishes the guilty. But of course, that is a challenge to every single one of us here. It's certainly a challenge to me because all of us, we are all bracketed under the guilty heading. We've all done stuff wrong. We all haven't lived up to God's perfect standard. As Paul famously writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve punishment. And God punishes the guilty. So that doesn't sound particularly great, does it? And yet it gets a whole lot more complicated. Because the next bit in verse 7 says this. It says, He, the Lord, punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now what is going on there? Here's what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that if I steal loads of money, God's going to let rip on my children rather than me. Okay, it cannot mean that. It can't mean that because elsewhere in the Bible, the Bible says exactly the opposite. So give me give you one example, Deuteronomy 24 verse 16, Moses says exactly the opposite. Moses says, 20, Deuteronomy 24 16, he says, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents, each will die for their own sin. So there's an individual responsibility there before God. We are all individually responsible before God. So what does this bit in verse 7 mean? What does it mean? I think it means at least um, three things. And again, I found really helpful uh, John Mark Comer's book, God Has a Name. Here's the first thing that I think uh, it means. It means this, that parents' sins have an impact on their children. Now, really, we all know that that is true. Just to give an example, when there's a break, been a breakdown in a marriage, a breakdown in a marriage which must be from the sin of at least one parent, if not both of them, then the children are deeply negatively impacted as a result. Parents' sins have an impact on their children. Second thing that I think it's talking about here is saying this, that sins can get passed down the generations. So I can see that immediately with my children. You know, when Susanna and I, when Susanna and I have an argument, our children start arguing more. And over time, if that continues, there is the danger of it becoming a pattern of sinful behavior, not just in me, but a pattern of sinful behavior in my children, so that the children become arguers as they grow up and as they go into adult life. You often say, don't you, you hear the phrase, he's a chip off the old block, she's a chip off the old block. And when people say that, when they say he's a chip off the old block, they're not just saying that they look like their parents, but so often actually they're saying they act like their parents. Their character is like their parents, including their parents' flaws and sins. Sins can pass down the generations. But also, thirdly, here's the thing that I think this bit is about. It's not just that parents' sins have an impact on their children. It's not just that sins can can get passed down the generations. But it is also that God's love triumphs over punishment. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
If you look at verse 7, if you were to look at it in the Hebrew and try and read the Hebrew, I can't do that, I don't understand Hebrew, but if you do, uh, you'll see in the English there, the last word in verse 7 is the word generation. Now that word generation, it's actually not there in the Hebrew, it's just the translators trying to make sense of the verse. It's actually not there. And so what God is actually doing here in verse 7, he is making a comparison between the first phrase in verse 7 and the last phrase in verse 7. Just have a look, would you? Look at the first phrase. Look at the start of verse 7. It says, God maintains love to thousands. Now look at the end of verse 7. God punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth. So there's the comparison. Love to thousands, punishing to third and fourth. Imagine a seesaw. When I was little, um, I used to go and uh, play at the local vicar's house because his children were the same age as me. And uh, when I was about seven, I can remember distinctly the vicar's daughter was about five and we used to go on the seesaw together in their back garden. And obviously, I, I was uh, a lot heavier than she was. And so we'd go on it and the, the seesaw would go down my side and she'd be left high and dry, legs dangling in the air. She'd get very scared. She'd start crying and I would just sit there like a fat lump and wouldn't move. <laughs> now... There was not symmetry on that seesaw between me and the vicar's daughter. And similarly, there is not symmetry for God between his love and his punishing. Far from it. It's a thousand for his love. It's three or four for his punishment. Love and punishment, they are not perfectly balanced on some divine seesaw. No, God, he leans heavily, he leans definitely, he leans decisively on one more than the other. Love to thousands. Punishment to three or four. Love triumphs over punishment. But the big question is this. How can these two characteristics of God just stick up those, would you, those two blue boxes again. Just stick them up. How can those two blue boxes, how can they both fit together? How can God be a God for whom love triumphs over punishment, and yet also how can he be a God who punishes the guilty? Particularly, how does that fit together when all of us, we are all guilty, we're all deserving punishment, so there seems to be no room at all for love because we are all deserving punishment. How does that work? I wonder if you heard um, the actor Chris Pratt's acceptance speech at the MTV Awards back in June. Chris Pratt, as you'll know, he's the star of the Lego movie Jurassic World Avengers. I understand he's a Christian. And for his um, acceptance speech, he gave uh, nine rules to live by for the next generation. It was an amazing speech. It went viral. It, it, everyone listened to it. And in amongst the sort of humor about how to give a dog medicine and uh, how to do a poop, he's American, how to do a poop in a bathroom at a party without it smelling too much, uh, he also said things that were really quite surprising for someone to say it, something like that. Rule two, he said, you have a soul. Be careful with it. Rule six, he said, God is real. God loves you. Believe that, I do. But perhaps the most countercultural of all his nine rules was the last one, the climax of his speech. Rule nine said this, nobody is perfect. People will tell you that you are perfect just the way you are. You're not you're imperfect, you always will be. 
And if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. Like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with somebody else's blood. Don't forget it. Don't take it for granted. And when he says that, that the grace was paid for with somebody else's blood, of course he is pointing to Jesus' death. Much like our verse today, Exodus 34 verse 7, that is also pointing us to Jesus' death. If you look at verse 7 and look at the bit where it says about forgiving, wickedness, rebellion and sin, literally that word forgiving, it means lifting up or, or taking away. And of course, that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. In John's gospel, it says he is lifted up on the cross. John the Baptist, as he looked at Jesus, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is the cross that solves this riddle of how God can be a God who punishes the guilty and yet also a God for whom love triumphs over punishment. And the solution to the riddle is this, that God in Christ, out of love took on himself the punishment that our guilt deserves. Jesus gets the punishment. We get the love. As Paul famously writes in Romans, Romans 5 verse 8, he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So over the last three weeks, What have we seen about what kind of God God is? We've seen that he is a God who wants relationship with you. He wants relationship with me, with each one of us. And he is the only one who's worthy of our worship. That was verse 5. We've seen that God, he is the perfect parent, the perfect judge, the perfect spouse who we can trust with our entire life. That was verse 6. And we've seen that God, that he is a God who punishes the guilty, and yet his love triumphs over punishment. That's today, verse 7. And whilst Yahweh, whilst he revealed all that about himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, actually he reveals it to you and me most of all, most clearly, at the cross. For at the cross we see a God who is compassionate and gracious, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in love and faithfulness, a God who is maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. We see that above all at the cross. A.W. Tozer was a, um, a pastor and writer in the first half of the 20th century. And this is one thing he wrote. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now just look at that statement. It is quite a claim, isn't it? Quite a claim. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. More important than your education, your sexuality, what you think about Brexit, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And the reason Tozer says that is this, because we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. You know how dogs, how dogs often look like their owners. Here are a few uh, prime examples of it, just going to come up. Here's the frizzy ones, uh, the grumpy ones coming next, uh, the silky ones, 
the inquisitive ones, and then my favorite, the very grumpy ones. Well, here's the thing. Just as dogs look like their owners, so us humans, we often look like the kind of God that we worship. We become like what we worship. So if you worship a bigoted, vengeful God, chances are you will become bigoted and vengeful too. If you worship a lifestyle guru God, in all likelihood you will more and more be into life, personal self-improvement. And that is why it is vital that you and I, that we worship the true God as he reveals himself to us. Because otherwise, we will never, ever become more like him. We'll never, ever become more like Jesus. The key problem is that so many of us so often make God in our own image so that he is a God who doesn't confront us, doesn't challenge us, doesn't require us to change. But the truth is that we all need to change to become more like Jesus. Because all of us, every single one of us, we have a gap between who we are and who God is. And following Jesus, being Jesus' disciple, it is about changing, closing that gap. Closing that gap one step at a time. Now some people take this bit that we've been looking at today, this bit about punishing children's children, and they talk about, you know, maybe in a, in a situation like I said at the start, the situation of a stillborn child. But maybe that happens because of the sin of the parents. But no, nothing could be further from the truth. Well, they look at this verse and they say, use it to talk about generational curses. How people could be locked into some ongoing difficulty because of the sin of someone a few generations previously. And they can do nothing about to change that situation. Yet verse 7, it is saying the very opposite to you and to me. No one who is in Christ need feel trapped or enslaved or in bondage or under an unbreakable curse because of something that their ancestors did or even because of something they themselves did. Because if we turn to the Lord, this verse says, he will forgive us. That's what the verse says. He is the Lord who forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. And so the encouragement tonight is that change is possible. Where you feel wrapped up in a sin, where you feel that you're repeating mistakes, perhaps even the mistakes of your parents or previous generations, you do not have to feel stuck anymore in Jesus and feel that you are unable to change. What was true for your parents does not have to be true for you. You can break free of the penalty of sin and become free of the power of sin in your life, even sin that runs back through the generations. Being a Christian, being a Christian is a long-term, eternal project. And God is at work in us throughout our entire lives, changing us to be more like Jesus as he works in us through the power of his spirit. And so tonight, tonight, whatever it might be that feels like an ongoing besetting sin, something that's a real struggle in our lives, whatever it might be, whether it's anger or porn or greed or alcohol or gambling or deceit or gossip or grumbling or whatever it might be, the one true God 
He can break the power of that sin in our lives because he has broken the power of sin at the cross. You see, the problem, the problem is not with the power of God to change us. God is powerful. There's no problem with God's power whatsoever. The problem is so often that we make God in our own image so that we say this so-called God doesn't require us to change. And so really the question for each one of us tonight is very simple. It's a question for me. It's a question for each of you. Will you allow, will you allow the one true God to bring about change in your life to make you more like Jesus. As we sit, shall we pray? Let's pray. Let's just take a moment to be quiet, to respond to the Lord where he's been speaking to us tonight. There's a quote from a a preacher in the 17th century called Cotton Mather. He said this, he said, the chief design and office of the Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men and women. And really that's my prayer right now. That as you respond to God now, just in the quietness, that he might be restoring in you his throne and dominion as you rejoice again in what kind of God God is. And Lord God, thank you that you are the Lord who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Thank you that it is because of the cross that that is possible that we can know forgiveness because you took the punishment so that we can know the love. Lord God, we praise you that right now amongst us you have been working in us by your spirit, that you've been convicting us where we need to change. And thank you that as we come to you and ask you to forgive us, you do indeed do that. And you help us to change. We thank you, Lord God, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you like to stand?